This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 217. Happy New Year, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, creator of worlds both strange and wonderful. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fiction with you. I'll also tell you about my struggles and successes as a writing professional. So let's get started, shall we? I'm going to switch up the order of things for this week's episode, for reasons that I'll explain later. We'll kick things off with a look at my writing endeavors. I'm recording this episode early, on New Year's Day 2020, so it's a perfect time to take a look back at what I've accomplished. Here's your end-of-the-year writing report. Looking back at the month of December, I wrote a total of 16,688 words in 25 days, averaging 668 words per day. That ranks 26th out of the 56 months since I started this podcast. I met my goal of writing on at least 24 days during the month. I spent a total of 21 hours writing in December. Compared to November, my word count increased by 21%, and my writing time increased by 5%. For 2019 as a whole, I wrote a grand total of 206,451 words. That's my second highest annual total since I started this podcast. Only 2016 was higher, with 220,548 words, and I more than doubled my word count over 2018, when I only wrote 92,685 words. 2019 was also the year when I was the most consistent in my daily writing habit. I wrote on 282 days, compared to 273 days in both 2016 and 2017, and only 146 days in 2018. Setting a monthly goal of writing on at least 24 days of every month made a big difference in my output. Even though I missed that goal on four of the twelve months, it gave me something to aim for, and that paid off. So that's the good news. The bad news is, I only completed three works of fiction last year. The first was the 85,000-word novel Homecoming, which I finished the first draft of in March after starting it the previous September, and then finished the edits for in May. The second was the 12,000-word short story The Nearness of You, which I also finished in March. The third was my novella, The Dark Lord Steve, which ran to about 20,000 words and was finished in July. So that's only about half the words I wrote this year. What happened to the other half? Well, about 20,000 words went into my Metamore City story All the World of Fire, which is looking like it's going to be a short novel instead of a novella. I worked on that story for 31 hours, off and on from March to September, and then had to set it aside. I wasn't in the right headspace for where the story was going, and I needed to give my subconscious some time to work on it in the background. A whopping 49,000 words went into writing the scripts for these podcast episodes. That took me a little by surprise. 
I didn't realize quite how much of my writing effort was just going into the show. I spent about 56 hours working on episode scripts in 2019. A few smaller projects took up some time here and there, including a couple of scientific papers and forwards for two books, Distant Realms and the second edition of Making the Cut. The last big contributor was the novel I'm currently working on, None Shall Dwell Within. I put in about 26,000 words on it in 2019, which took me about 41 hours. Overall, I'm very proud of what I've accomplished in 2019. Even though I didn't rack up as many new completed works as I would have liked, and I never reached the big monthly or daily numbers that I've achieved in some previous years, I showed real growth in writing consistently, day after day. My goal for 2020 is to build on that progress. I'm going to keep my goal of writing on at least 24 days of every month, and I'm going to add a new goal for my average words per day. In 2019 as a whole, I averaged 735 words per day on the days that I was writing. In 6 out of those 12 months, though, I averaged less than 700 words per day, and for some of those it was more like 500. So my new goal is to average at least 700 words per day in every month while continuing to write on at least 24 days in every month. My stretch goal is to finish the first draft of None Shall Dwell Within before the end of 2020. That's going to be ambitious. I'm expecting this book to be at least 200,000 words. My hope is that by setting this as a goal for the year, I can keep myself focused on this story, and avoid getting drawn off onto rabbit trails by every shiny new idea that comes my way. So, that's where I'm at. I'm excited for the year to come, and I'm glad you're taking this journey with me. And now, the feedback. Hi, Chris. Uh, This is Mithril Dragon, and I had a question you brought up in episode three of Nearness to You. You seem to describe two terms for the technological mind-sharing. There was a telepresence. You described that as Tad and Jill were in a telepresence link when the car crashed and Jill was killed. The way you described it, this seemed to indicate a live, real-time connection between the two people. Then, later on, you talk about an instance where once the mind-to-mind contact is done, the person, maybe a few minutes later or an hour later, gets those memories back, which indicates that that's not a real-time connection, that somebody sent over a chunk of their mind, a chunk of their memories to interact with another person, and then they get it back later on. That's just kind of what, what it seemed like to me. I'd appreciate it if you'd talk a little bit more about that and clear it up. Enjoying the book. Hope you're having a good day. Thank you. Hi, Mithril Dragon. Sure, I'm happy to clear this up. Telepresence is the name for the overall technology of sending your awareness somewhere else. An instance is an individual session of telepresence, hosted on someone else's AR implants. Telepresence doesn't actually create a real-time connection between two people. The speed of light isn't fast enough for that sort of a connection, as you can see if you've ever watched people talking to each other on a satellite uplink on live television. Instead, it creates the illusion of a real-time connection through a two-step trick. First, the person sending the instance is sedated by their own AR implants. Then, a digital proxy gets sent to the person receiving the instance. The proxy is an artificial intelligence, equipped with a snapshot of the person's memories and personality, which interacts with the host on the host's implants. 
After the instance is over, the proxy's memories are transmitted back to the sender. Then their AR implants wake them up again. They didn't go anywhere, but they feel like they did, and they have memories from the proxy that feel genuine. The sedation is a necessary part of the process, because otherwise they'd have two sets of memories from the same time period, and that would create a psychological disconnect that would make it hard for them to accept the proxy's input. So when Jill was killed in the car crash, she was asleep while her proxy acted in the instance. That's why it seemed like she died while she was with Tad, when in reality only her copy was there. I hope that makes sense. Thanks for the call. Simeon also had a question about the nearness of you. He writes, Hi Chris, I've just finished listening to the nearness of you, but something is really bothering me about the story. It may be that I'm just misunderstanding the underlying tech involved. I just don't understand what the big deal is about running Jill's instance after her body dies. She can move from place to place around the school, or around the world as Part 5 demonstrated. Why didn't Tad just get a freestanding node to park her instance in? She can live in a body implant, probably something no larger than a smallish cell phone. It seems that he could have easily purchased a device Jill could live in and just wear it on a lanyard around his neck. I just don't get the angst, and it, for me, really robbed the story of a lot of its intended emotional impact. What am I missing? Good question, Simeon. The short answer is that Jill's existence was an accident that society hadn't adapted to yet. This world has artificial intelligences that are designed to hang around for a long time, but they aren't built to believe that they're human. It also has artificial intelligences that carry a copy of a human's personality and memories, but they're only supposed to exist for as long as an instance is running, and then they're shut down. Jill is something new, a long-term, persistent intelligence that thinks of herself as a human, and that comes with some complications that the world wasn't ready for. The human mind is built to receive human sensory inputs. We evolved to be able to see in a certain spectrum, to hear in a certain range of frequencies, to touch things and sense temperature and smell and taste. The AR implants are built to translate those human inputs into their digital equivalents. So when Jill is being hosted on a set of implants, then she can experience real sensory inputs from her host, and simulated sensory inputs that seem to belong to her virtual body. Though, as we saw in the story, those simulated inputs aren't quite as good as the real thing. Now, if Tad had transferred Jill's program to some sort of freestanding computer, it wouldn't have the AR system's specialized interface, so it wouldn't be able to provide her with those inputs, real or simulated. It would have been like sticking her in a sensory deprivation chamber. It would have been literal torture. Sure, it's possible to build a standalone device that acts like a set of AR implants, but at the time this story takes place, no one is selling one yet. Because there's never been a being like Jill before, and nobody had a compelling reason to stick their own short-term digital proxies into a box somewhere. Now, as you point out, Jill does go walking around the school in Part 4, but that just means that she's shifting the perspective point for her visual and auditory inputs. To do that, she's taking advantage of cameras and microphones installed throughout the school. But she's still running on Tad's implants, and that means that when it comes to the other senses, 
touch, taste, smell, temperature, she's limited to the input that those implants can provide. And that means that she can't touch Tad, because the only touch sensors she has access to are the ones in Tad's body. In Part 5, we see Jill actually transferring her program across the world. In that case, she's no longer running on Tad's or Sarah's implants, but she still has to have someone on the receiving end who can act as a host. Jill is still depending on borrowed sensory inputs in order to give her the illusion of being real. In the future of this story world, I could envision more digital persons like Jill coming into existence. It would be a compelling way for people with disabilities or life-threatening illnesses to escape the limitations of their physical bodies. And in time, I suspect that solutions like the one you suggest would be readily available. But this is the story of the first digital person, and everything that she, Tad, and Sarah have been working out has been sort of fumbling around on the bleeding edge of innovation, making use of technology in ways its designers had never intended. And that sort of experimentation? Well, as we saw here, it comes with growing pains. I hope that makes sense. Thanks for the question. And now, on to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the first part of my apocalyptic erotic fantasy story, Tears Such as Angels Weep. This story was commissioned by Philippa Ballantyne and first ran on her podcast, Erotica a la Carte, back in 2010. This is an all-new solo read of the story, which I'm producing for the upcoming audiobook of Distant Realms. This is a 5,000-word story, which is too long to produce for a single episode of the podcast. It's also a story that doesn't have a convenient breaking point anywhere near the middle. So I'm going to do the same thing here that I did for my story Maternal Instinct, back in episodes 92 and 93. This episode will end with a short musical tag, but no outro babble. Next week's episode will start the same way this one ends. No babble, just a musical intro, followed by the story, with the usual babble after the story is finished. That way, if you listen to the two parts back-to-back, you'll get the full, uninterrupted story experience. Before we begin, let me remind you that this podcast is copyright 2020 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press, and is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. For more information on the terms of this license, please visit creativecommons.org. Lastly, a content warning for those who haven't heard this story before. This is an erotica story, so the second half contains explicit sexual content. Also, the protagonist is not a nice person, and he uses derogatory epithets for both Jewish and Arabic people in the first half of the story. Views expressed by the character do not reflect the views of the author. And now, here's the story. Tears Such as Angels Weep Written in Red by Chris Lester The snow has finally stopped falling by the time I crest the last ridge and look down at the mortal village below. The clouds have parted, and a blood-red moon glares down on the valley, the way a man looks at something stuck to the bottom of his shoe. Little yurts and decrepit cottages cluster together alongside a fast-moving river, 
tendrils of smoke reaching up from chimneys and stovepipes. I smile with lips that aren't my own, as I imagine adding a few larger fires to the mix. My host's muscles are sore from four hours of cross-country skiing, and while I feel the pain, it isn't all that important. Not compared to the quiet pleasure of the hunt, the satisfaction of having my prey within my sights. I reach into a vest pocket and pull out my heat-vision binoculars. I feel ridiculous using them. Why should I need a mortal invention to see in the dark? But this body I wear still has its limitations. In my true form, I could have flown over the snow instead of slogging through it like some spiritless mortal monkey. But the time isn't right yet. Though we have been freed to manifest in this world again, the channel is still too narrow for us to shape bodies to our liking. Our link to the cosmic symphony is tenuous, our songs of creation and destruction limited in their power and effectiveness. Until we can change that, we're stuck using these mortal flesh bags for transportation. I'm right here, you know. My host's thoughts bubble up in our shared brain space, all annoyance and injured pride. He calls himself Michael. Like many things the mortals do, I find this both hilarious and unbelievably arrogant. Yes, yes you are. I say, forming the words with his own voice, and so am I. I raise the binocs to our eyes and look down at the village. The buildings glow softly against the cold background, and through the windows I can see mortals moving around inside them. Your kind wouldn't be here at all if it weren't for us, Michael reminds me, as if I need reminding. The Goetic Revolution opened the seals that kept you bound in darkness. You could at least show a little gratitude. I have to laugh at that. Mike, my dear boy, who do you think you're talking to? My gratitude consists of the fact that you are living and breathing, and will continue to do so as long as you are useful to me. It's a better deal than you deserve. The headcount is a bit uncertain from up here, but I can see enough warm bodies to know this is a real encampment, and not a trap laid for hunters like me. I put away the binoculars and start down the ridge, moving cautiously so I don't set off an avalanche and break Michael's neck or something. I suppose I shouldn't be so hard on him. After all, he has a point. If humans hadn't been the short-sighted, egotistical creatures that they are, they never would have invented the goetic science that made it possible for us to re-enter their world. We'd left behind clues, of course. The secret wisdom we imparted to Solomon before he betrayed and imprisoned us behind the very seals we had taught him to use. But the old sorcerer king was clever and he added enough disinformation to the books to make sure no one else would ever be able to call on us again. At least, not until someone figured out how to blend occult secrets with modern quantum mechanics, rediscovering the knowledge that Solomon had done his best to bury. The monkeys never guessed that he might have had a good reason for doing it. It's been twenty years since the seals were opened, and we've made a pretty good showing, if I may say so myself. A little nuclear exchange in the Middle East has eliminated just about everybody who might have known how to put us back in our prison. 
The more enlightened countries of the world were all too willing to embrace Goetic science with its amazing advances in technology. By the time we revealed ourselves as the power behind the magic, almost everyone with any money or power to speak of was already under our influence. There were the expected holdouts. Most of Latin America, some parts of Africa, and here, in the rural backwaters of the United States— but we're bringing them into line, slowly but surely. It's all a matter of finding the pockets of resistance and applying the right sort of leverage. Which is where Michael and I come in. Mike is ex-Special Forces, a natural outdoorsman and a tracker. And me? I've been a hunter since before the humans came down out of the trees. Oh, yes, and both of us are rather good at hurting people. When the Dukes needed someone to track down rebels in the American heartland, it was a match made in, well, someplace a lot warmer than this. I keep both Mike's human senses and my infernal ones sharp for signs of trouble as I approach the village. We're in the ass-crack of nowhere, high in the mountains of the Pacific Northwest. The snowstorms have grounded our planes and helicopters, and something is playing merry havoc with our satellites whenever they pass over here. GPS, sat phones, and songs of scrying are all equally useless. My job is to go in, find whatever's causing the problem, and remove it, the old-fashioned way. Oh, sure, we could have just nuked the area, but that would fuck up the watershed for the whole SeaTac metropolitan area. Despite everything the mortals have done to it, this world is still a lot more pleasant than where we've been for the last 3,000 years, and we'd like to keep it that way. That ten-minute war between the Yids and the Towelheads screwed things up enough already, if you couldn't have guessed from the red-eyed moon and the ten-below temperature. The ridge turns into a gentle slope as it nears the ground, and I cut back and forth across the powder to keep from picking up too much speed. Skiing is not the stealthiest form of movement in the world, but it's a lot better than slogging around in two feet of snow. The snow itself absorbs the sound of everything around us, giving the village and the surrounding forest a hushed, watchful feeling. The peaceful air of the place sets my teeth on edge, and my hand itches to hold the assault rifle strapped to my back instead of these ski poles. Patience, I remind myself. A hunter must be patient. I circle slowly around the village at about a hundred yards' distance, looking for the source of the interference that's causing us so much trouble. I don't see any radio transmitters or other obvious jamming equipment. There's something here, though. A half-remembered feeling just on the edges of my perception, like the tingling of an old scar. I move in closer, keeping to the shadows, all of our shared senses alert. The trap springs without a warning. Lines of blue-white fire erupt from the snow around me, wrapping around my host body like whip cords. Icy hot agony fills my infernal senses, my spirit form writhing under Michael's skin. I try to sing, a dissonant chord that would let me cut free of the binding, but the enemy's song is too powerful, and it chokes off my access to the symphony. An enemy song? Here? Before I can process the thought, a dart comes whistling out of the trees and strikes Michael in the throat. 
My host's body crumples, and as our vision goes dark, I see a figure in winter camo gear drop out of the trees and begin stalking toward me.